Hey everyone, this is David Green. I am the co-founder of Fearless Media and your host here on Left, Right, and Center. This is the show where we take on all of the political issues, even the really complicated ones that might be dividing your own family these days. So we're about a week and a half away from the midterm elections, these midterms that could you know, alter the balance of power in Washington. And I love times like this. I've always loved elections because for all the talking we hear from pundits, from analysts, this is the moment for voters to have their voices heard, you know, the voices that truly matter. And many voters seem really energized. Early voting is already approaching the record-breaking numbers from 2018, and turnout overall is projected to be one of the highest ever for midterms. Let's bring in our panelists, who we learned last week are friends. They grab lunch together in Washington, D.C., even though they come from different walks of life politically. So I want to hear more about that for sure. Mo Lathy is executive director at Georgetown University's Institute of Politics and Public Service, was communications director for the Democratic National Committee, and an advisor to Hillary Clinton. On the left, that is Mo. On the right, we have Sarah Isger, staff writer at The Dispatch, a lawyer and former spokesperson at the Department of Justice under President Trump. Um, hello to both of you. And did I miss a fun lunch since last week's show? <laughs> Not a lunch, but but Mo and I have have been chit-chatting over at the Dispatch podcast, The Remnant. So You do you know, other podcasts. We cheated on you. Yeah, we cheated on you That's a great. Clearly not as much fun <laughs> as this one. Well, you know, one thing I love to do, you know, around an election is just to do some some listening, you know, to the pitches and, and policy positions that voters are hearing on debate stages, on the stump. Um, and I thought we could zoom in together on one race to start, and that's the battle for a Senate seat in Pennsylvania that really could be it could be a crucial Democratic pickup and help them hang on to control of the Senate or be a reason that Republicans take control. Democrat John Fetterman and Republican Mehmet Oz met for their first and only debate this week. And Dr. Oz was asked whether he would support a federal ban on abortion. And here was his response. There should not be involvement from the federal government in how states decide their abortion decisions. As a physician, I've been in the room when there's some difficult conversations happening. I don't want the federal government involved with that at all. I want women, doctors, local uh, political leaders letting the democracy that's always allowed our nation to thrive to put the best ideas forward so states can decide for themselves. Sarah, it seemed like a kind of a state's rights argument, but a sloppy one. What what did you think of that? (laughs) So Oz did this multiple times during the debate, but it stood out most in his abortion answers where conservatism isn't his native language. And so as he's trying to learn that while also campaigning on a pretty national stage at this point, he can, you know, feel like he's making the right argument, but say it in the wrong way. And I think that was a good example. It's a very good argument for conservatives to say Dobbs is actually doing its job. This was meant to be left to the political branches at the state level so that individual, you know, states and and people living together can make this decision rather than the Supreme Court setting the standard for both the floor and the ceiling or, frankly, Congress setting some nationwide standard. Same exact problem in a lot of ways, slightly more representative maybe. But the way Oz phrased that was obviously a little odd and has been used against him many times in the last few days. Yeah. Uh, But actually, his next answer was more interesting to me. He's asked whether he would vote yes or no on Lindsey Graham's 15-week abortion ban. And he says, let me give you a bigger answer. I wouldn't vote for any federal legislation on abortion. She presses again. So that's a no on Lindsey Graham's bill. I wouldn't support any federal legislation. She asks again, and he says, I think I've answered the question. Very strange when... 
at least his answer appears to be saying no, but then why not just say no? And to the extent he thinks that's politically clever, um, I think that it turned into a Rorschach test where people on the left or people who are pro-choice thought he was being cute while saying he was going to vote for it. Um, and people on the right could think he was being cute by saying he wasn't going to vote for it. So I think he might have alienated both sides of the argument on that. Not exactly what he wanted to do. And, I mean, and doesn't this speak to the dance that a, that a Republican like Oz has to do in a state like Pennsylvania, where, I mean, if he's going to win this race, it's going to rely on, you know, the Philadelphia suburbs, which, of course, we always hear about in, you know, in, in moments like this. There are a lot of people, a lot of women in the Philadelphia suburbs who can vote Republican but are in favor of abortion rights. I mean, he's got to do a dance here, and this is what happens when you're trying to dance. Yes and no. So some of this was just clearly Oz, you're right, trying to move to the center on all of these issues. He did very similar answers on immigration, on guns, where it was a lot of words articulately said, but not a lot of actual substance to the answer, sort of a classic centrist move of like, don't worry, we'll figure it out later. Um, At the same time, though, when he was asked whether he would support former President Trump in 2024, he said, I'll support whoever the Republican nominee is. And they said, "Okay, but like, what if it's Trump? And he said, yeah, I'll support President Trump. Trump. Clearly not a move to to work with the Philadelphia suburbs there. That was to not alienate that core MAGA base that exists in Pennsylvania in large numbers, remember. What does it say about Oz, about Pennsylvania, about the state of our politics, about anything you want to talk about, that you have the Republican candidate in a race that could help determine control of the Senate, and it's a candidate who can't speak conservative, as you said? I mean, we're seeing that more and more. Anytime you have a celebrity candidate, they're usually not coming up through the sort of educational side of intellectual conservatism. And this isn't anything new, obviously. Um, We've had celebrity candidates, whether it's television celebrity or family name celebrity. I mean, just think Arnold Schwarzenegger here, Jesse Ventura. Um, So... And Donald Trump, Donald Trump doesn't run on the traditional Republican platform in 2016. Donald Trump runs as Donald Trump, who at times tried to mimic sort of conservative talking points. And that's how you end up with him at one point, I believe, saying, you know, like women should go to jail for abortions and stuff that is just not part of the pro-life movement or their beliefs. But if you don't really speak the language, you can fall into some weird places. Mo, what what do Democrats do in the final days to try and, you know, defeat this candidate who's doing dances, who's saying he would support President Trump, who's sounding like a centrist on abortion? I mean, if you're if you're in the the, the campaign war room for Fetterman, what, what are you what are you saying? Uh, I would reject part of that premise. I don't know that he does sound like a centrist on abortion. I mean, I think Sarah's right that he has trouble speaking conservative, but he's been actually fairly conservative on most choice-related issues. You know, I think there's a hybrid, um, and, and we talked about this a little bit on last week's show, and I think that there is sort of a hybrid approach here that Democrats uh, ought to be taking here in the final stretch. And Oz gave them a huge opening by saying the decision on choice, the decision on women's health should be left to a woman, her doctor, and local political figures. It gives Democrats the opportunity to say, we are, we get you, we hear your frustration, we get how inflation and crime are your priorities. Those are our priorities. They are trying to bring government into the 
examining room. They are trying to bring government into libraries. They are trying to bring government into, they can go through a whole host of issues. And using Oz as, as an example, talk about the difference in priorities. Instead, they're allowing Republicans to keep them on defense on inflation and crime. There's an offensive play to make here while highlighting what they want people to believe is Republican extremism on abortion. Um, and and I think they can do that, but the clock is is running out. And yeah, they're I'd almost like out of time. More, yeah, I'd like to see more candidates doing that. Well, you, I mean, you mentioned the economy, inflation, gas prices, all high on the minds of voters in Pennsylvania and elsewhere. Um, and, you know, Republicans, of course, pushing... You know, the, the idea of increasing domestic energy production um, to to tell voters that they would take care of high gas prices and fracking came up in this debate. That's the controversial extraction of natural gas. Big deal in, in my home state of Pennsylvania. Fetterman, the lieutenant governor, the Democrat, was asked about his waffling on the issue. He once said that he does not support fracking at all. Here's what he said in the debate. I've always supported fracking, and I always believe that independence with our energy is, is critical, and we can't be held, you know, uh, you know, ransom to somebody like Russia. You're saying tonight that you support fracking, that you've always supported fracking, but there is that 2018 interview that you said, quote, I don't support fracking at all. So how do you square the two? Oh, uh, I, I, I do support fracking. And I don't, I don't, I support fracking and I stand and I do support fracking. I want to get to Fetterman's overall debate performance in a sec, but um, Mo, I mean, he was against fracking before he was for fracking. I mean, what, what does this tell you about Democrats and the dance they're having to do on, on an issue like this that involves the economy, gas prices, the environment? Yeah, no, that was that's certainly not a great moment for him. And, um, you know, <laughs> <laughs> And no. that's why we have Mo for his analysis. <laughs> <laughs> I had a mentor early in my career who said something that I, you know, a lot of people would wince if they heard, but but I think there's a little bit of truth to that. And that is most voters don't care if you flip-flop as long as the final flop is in the right place for them. Huh. And, okay. and I actually think that's true for a lot of voters, that they see a political evolution as okay. Where are you for me today? I don't care where you were back then. Where are you for me today? And you see a lot of candidates um, sort of jump down their opponent's throat every time they they flip-flop. But voters don't always react the same way. I'm th I think about, for example, going back to abortion, Donald Trump, who was once famously pro-choice and came out pro-life, and the evangelicals and pro-life voters stuck with him because they said that's where he is now. So the flip-flop isn't, I think, the problem for him, I think it. I think you're right. It is illustrative of a dance Democrats are having to do on energy right now, and uh, as gas prices are still high. But I think if he's able to reassure people that the, in Pennsylvania who are pro fracking that that's where he is, they'll be okay. I don't know that the way he did it was reassuring, but and and it goes to sort of what you were just alluding to the overall debate performance. Yeah. Um, but being pro-fracking now after having been anti-fracking before, the flip-flop argument doesn't stick the way it used to. Hmm. 
Well, let's just say it. I mean, he, he really struggled in this debate. You can hear it. I mean, Fetterman suffered a stroke in May. He is still recovering from auditory and speech difficulties. Um, Sarah, if you were advising that campaign, would you have had him on that stage? So I think they faced a few choices. Let's put ourselves back in the war room around Labor Day when they were making this decision. Uh, he had stayed off the campaign trail since the primary, obviously recovering at home. Um, and at that point, people basically had to take their word for it, including national Democrats, by the way, who were deeply concerned about this race and about his ability to get back on the campaign trail. I think national Democrats can have a real beef with the Fetterman campaign at this point because I think there's an argument that they were misled at various points. Um, There have been letters released from Fetterman's doctors, but no health records. And I say all that because that puts you in the war room. He hasn't been out there. Nobody quite knows what his recovery pace has been. They can pick multiple debates, one debate, no debates, and the timing of when those debates are going to be. They obviously picked one debate at the very end. They had already banked about 460,000 early votes by the time of that debate this week. And clearly that was their strategy, right? They felt like they had to debate, but they wanted to bank as many votes as they could beforehand. I think there were two problems with that. They couldn't know that his debate performance would be as bad as it was. I'm going to guess that Fetterman had a particularly bad night at that debate and that he is better one-on-one with reporters, as I think we know uh, or can assume, and that he's probably, you know, there's times of day where patients recovering are going to be stronger, less strong. So it probably was a particularly bad night and they weren't necessarily preparing for the worst. But if they had known this was going to be the performance... A, you probably don't agree to any debate. Better to have people assume the worst than open your mouth and remove all doubt, to paraphrase Ben Franklin. Yeah, to see Um, it. And then second, if you were going to do it, I do think they made a mistake by going so late. If that debate performance had happened in September, maybe it would have caused the same damage, but it also would have been old news by this point in the campaign. He would have been able to do those one-on-one interviews to show that it was a particularly bad night. They could have tried to do another debate, maybe at a different time of day. Now they're running out of time. And now they're out of time, and this is a bad taste to leave in voters' mouths. Maybe partisanship will carry them over the line, but I think there's a chance at least that this could actually not be a very close race. Mo, are you, if, you're, if you were still in the DNC at this moment, are you ticked off, as Sarah suggested, feeling like you were misled and, and sitting there thinking like this is, this is a crucial race? And I know that this candidate suffered a terrible thing and is recovering, um, but that can't happen. I'd be nervous. I'd be worried. Um, but here's the thing that I keep, I've been thinking about this so much over the past couple of days. It, to listen to all of us, right? All the professional talkers, all the media, all the political prognosticators, like people are writing them off. People are saying, you know, maybe, maybe there's a chance. But people are saying that this could have been the cataclysmic <laughs> moment towards the end of the campaign. And maybe it is. Here comes the expectations but, game. You're going to say it might work in his favor. But what if it's not? Yeah. <laughs> right? Voters have a funny way of deciding for themselves. Yep. And I think back to the Access Hollywood tapes. I'm not comparing John Fetterman to Donald <laughs> Trump, but I think, but that was one of those bombshell moments that so many people thought was, was the game changer, was the game ender for the Trump campaign. And it didn't end it. It actually ended up reinforcing everybody's views of Donald Trump. 
right? Whether if you were anti-Trump, it reinforced that. If you were pro-Trump, the way the media was covering that moment reinforced the notion that he's being a victim of an unfair media ecosystem. Don't assume anything about voters. Um, so you don't assume anything about voters. Like, will they see it the way the the Fetterman campaign is is talking about it? As look, you know, the whole theme, the whole message, narrative of my campaign is that we all get knocked down and we get back up. Something that we can all relate to, and that that's something the Fetterman campaign is is something really that pushing. we can all relate to. And look at how unfairly he's being treated by the media. Maybe some people say that. So I, I, the short answer is, I don't know. Yeah. This may have been the game ender, but we can't make any assumptions now. Um, we're going to have to we're going to have to take a quick break, but let's let's come back to this because I don't want to leave us yet. We'll be back with Mo Lathy and Sarah Isker in just a moment. You're listening to Left, Right, and Center. You're hearing civilized yet provocative opinions from across the political spectrum. Now we need to know what you think. Tweet us at LRC KCRW. All right, we are back again with Left, Right, and Center. We were talking about uh, whether this is the end of the Fetterman campaign because of his debate performance and and obviously his his very difficult challenges coming back from a stroke and whether how voters will will perceive this. Um, Sarah, you were you were about to jump in. You were asking Mo and I this question 20, 25 years ago when we started out in this business. I think the answer would be really obvious to both of us. Part of the change, though, is this hyper partisanship, and so. People are willing to think of their senators as, you know, Votatron 9000. And what does it say if Herschel Walker and John Fetterman both win their races in terms of that hyper-partisanship that we're experiencing where voters were willing to overlook what would have been a deal-breaker and, frankly, probably should have been a deal-breaker in those races because it was a binary choice? Mo, I remember when you were working for Hillary Clinton and I was covering her campaigns and I was traveling and there were times when it felt like she should just be more honest about vulnerabilities, like exhausting, long campaign trips, seven stops during a day, during a primary season. And, you know, that was one thing that I that I felt voters didn't really get get to ever see. It was always sort of on and off. Like, I'm going to be on the stage. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, be in it. And then I'm going to kind of, when I, you know, when reporters would see her behind the scenes, you could just see the the exhaustion and everything. And, you know, I remember asking her about this. I mean, I, I wonder if, if, if that's something that Fetterman can present. I am, I went through something hard. I am, I am vulnerable. I am recovering and yeah, doing what they're doing. I mean, suggesting that we all go through terrible stuff and you can relate and I think that's what they are trying to do, right? I mean, he that's even how he opened up the debate by saying, let's address the elephant in the room. I, I had a stroke, something my opponent hasn't let me forget. We all, like many people, I suffered a major medical setback. But I'm not fully back, but I'm coming back. And I'm going to work Mo, hard just like so many problem? of us. He won't release his medical records. And so at this point, do you feel confident that you know whether he is continuing to recover or whether this is potentially where he's at? Yeah, to me, the argument falls apart if he won't, if his campaign won't release those those records and be transparent Part of being authentic is being transparent. (laughs) But we're talking about what voters think, right? What what are, how are voters going to look at it? And I think Sarah's right that there is a certain level of hyper-partisanship where people who are sympathetic to him 
or who are absolutely not sympathetic to Dr. Oz may say, you know what, what he's saying makes sense and I think he's being treated unfairly. Those same people might feel the exact opposite way if it was the other candidate. And regardless, I know this guy will vote the right way. Even if he, I mean, they can assume he has no cognitive abilities whatsoever, but I know he's going to push the button, you know, for nay. Well, either that or he's at least still fighting, right? And that's what people are looking for in so many cases. They want someone who's a fighter. And here's a guy who got knocked down and look at him getting back up into the arena even before he's fully ready. I respect that. So that is what they are hoping people will see. And I think it's a legitimate hope for them to have because, again, we have seen time and time again over the past decade that voters have a funny way of looking at things differently than we do. They may, however, say the exact opposite. That's why I think in a race as close as that one, the more we talk about it, the less we actually probably know. They, voters are going to look at it the way they're going to look at it, and they're not going to listen to us talk about it. They're going to decide for themselves. I hope some of them listen to us talk about it. I mean, even if they're going to make their own decisions. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I mean, there are two there are two other names that are looming large over these midterms. Um, Joe Biden and Donald Trump. The president, former president, have been crisscrossing the country, holding events that, you know, may not officially connect to to these other races, but their events obviously make news and help frame the conversation. And these are two people who could, could be running against each other again in 2024, although the parties, according to polls, are, are mixed on whether they actually want them as the nominees. Um, but it's interesting to me because both Biden and Trump are using scare tactics a lot around Halloween, we should say, arguing that People in the other party have just gotten too extreme. So I just want to listen to a, a little bit of Joe Biden here at a DNC event this week. I served a long time in the Senate with a lot of conservative, decent, honorable Republicans who played by the rules. Sometimes they won, sometimes they lost. They're decent, honorable people. And there's still some of them there. But this is a different breed of cat, this mega, mega Republican group. I really mean it. Okay, and here is a little bit from former President Trump. If you want to save your rights and liberties, you have to start by dealing a crushing rebuke to the radical left maniacs that we're dealing with in this election. These are maniacs. For six straight years, the witch hunts, hoaxes, abuses have been coming fast and furious, mostly aimed at me. Isn't that nice? What a wonderful life. Our great first lady said, what a wonderful job. This is so lovely. Every day you get a subpoena. So, Sarah, I mean, both parties saying don't trust the other one because they're a bunch of crazies over there. I mean, is that where we are in our politics? Yeah, it's not good. So, first of all, and I know I'm, I'm beating this horse. It's been Beat rotting away. in the field for a while. But it really bothers me when Joe Biden, who has said this before, right, this idea that there used to be these good Republicans. They'd win sometimes. They'd lose sometimes. And doesn't mention the fact that Chuck Schumer spent $53 million to defeat those Republicans in their primaries, including one that voted to impeach Donald Trump after January 6th. All sorts of moderate Republicans they worked incredibly hard to beat in these races to give the Democrat a better chance. Don't bemoan the fact that the Republican Party is becoming more extreme when you spent $50 million 
attempting to make it more extreme and cater to those very Republican primary voters uh, who want to make it more extreme. But can't both those things be true? I mean, that they are too extreme and that the Democrats used a very questionable strategy to, to thinking that they could, like, run against the people they wanted to run against. I mean, can't— Yeah, it just bothers me that when Joe Biden says that, it's like this, oh, it's just bemoaning this thing that's, like, totally out of his control. And, like, no, your party, the party that you're currently—he's at a DNC event raising money— to fill the coffers where those $53 million, you know, at least partially came from. And, you know, we also hear these polls, 70% of Americans think democracy is under threat. And when you hear pundits talk about that, you know, they'll often say, uh, yep, the January 6th stuff is really landing. Republicans are a huge threat. And I just thought this New York Times Siena College poll was really enlightening as we talk about this and we think about Trump and Biden out there. Um, 28% think that the GOP is a major threat to democracy. 33% think the Democratic Party is a major threat to democracy among independents. So take out the partisans on each side. 23% view the GOP as a major threat. 31% say the same about Democrats. My point, these numbers happen to show that the Democratic Party is viewed as a little bit more of a threat by independents. That's actually not my point. My point is how even those numbers are where a third, a quarter of the country um, thinks that each of the two major political parties are a major threat to U.S. democracy. That's the election we're heading into. And that's where Joe Biden and Donald Trump enter this conversation. That's bad. It's bad. Mo, do do Democrats, does the party recognize that? Are they confronting it, even if they don't want to believe it? I mean, are they confronting the fact that that what Sarah said might be true? There are a lot of voters out there who think that the Democrats are are as dangerous for our democracy as Republicans are? Well, I mean, it's something that they've been grappling with for some time, right? I mean, if you listen to some news networks, uh, you know, the squad and, and Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and the far progressive left is the big, you know, and the social and their socialist agenda, as as it's described, is what is uh, being perceived by many as a threat to democracy. I, I agree with Sarah that we overlook the fact that when people say they are worried about democracy, that too many people misread what that means, right? Because the reality is, there's nobody out there who says they're anti-democracy. The people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th believed in their minds that they were the guardians of democracy. But just listening to the two potential presidential candidates next time, Trump is saying, if you're not with us, you are evil, right? The entire left, you call call them maniacs, call me a maniac. That's one strategy. That is not a strategy of reconciliation. Biden at least is trying in his rhetoric, I think, to say that there is one sliver of folks out there who are very loud and who are hijacking one of the political parties, but we can go back, right? Almost sort of saying to Republicans what I think a lot of never-Trump Republicans have been saying for a long time, that that it is you we're not shooting conservatives right we're not coming after conservatism they're co- he's, they're coming after mega mega but saying mega mega doesn't sound very conciliatory but he's talking what he's trying to do i think is say to independents and to say and, and to 
conservatives who don't necessarily love that part of what the Republican Party has become, I think he's saying to them, it's okay, you can be conservative without being that. This is the put y'all back in chains guy. In January, he says in Atlanta about the 19 states that passed voting laws after 2020, four of which that have Democratic governors, by the way, called it Jim Crow 2.0. That's not conciliatory. That's not inviting moderate conservatives who the majority of the country believes in voter ID, for instance. It's not inviting them over to join his party. If he's on a debate stage with Donald Trump again, and those are the two clips that are the takeaway. Agreed. Okay. For people who are just freaking exhausted. Yeah, I just wish it were true. With all of this. Then I think what he's doing is going to be more appealing than what Trump is doing. Fair. I want to play one other clip because the economy is really important to a lot of voters. And and when Americans are struggling economically with things like high gas prices, inflation, you know, it can be perilous politically for a sitting president. But Biden was doing his best to make a forceful argument on the economy, starting with saying that Republicans will be responsible for raising the prices on prescription drugs if they're running things in Washington. That's the whole mega mega trickle down policies. Give big pharma the power to increase drug prices. Cut taxes for the wealthy, but cut Social Security, I mean, and cut Social Security and Medicare for seniors. That's an upgrade trade on cuts. Threaten the very foundation of American economy that if we don't meet their demands, they're going to shut the place down. And then they talk about inflation. Everything they'll do is going to make inflation worse. Everything Republicans will do is going to make inflation worse. Mo, what evidence is there that that is true? Well, and, you know, he highlighted a couple of things, right? And and that's where I think they need to focus, you know, coupled with, you know, now I'm going to beat a dead horse, but like the, the, we get it. We get how expensive life is becoming. That's why we passed this bill that will reduce the cost of prescription medication. They say they want to repeal that. While at the same time, they're pushing a 15-week ban on abortion. Who's got the priorities that that you care about and who's got the priorities that you think will actually bring down your day-to-day prices. If that's the message, that's a message that keeps them in the game. Um, and, and that's what I think they're trying to start to do. I wish they had started trying to do that earlier. All right. Talking to Mo Alethi and Sarah Isger, um, we're going to be back in a sec to talk to our special guest about the future of affirmative action. You're listening to Left, Right & Center. Thanks for listening to Left, Right, and Center. Is there someone in your life who could benefit from hearing a civilized discussion from all sides? Share the show with them. You can stream all episodes at kcrw.com slash LRC, straight from the KCRW app or wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, we're back again with Left, Right, and Center. I am your host, David Green. At the center, on the right, we have Sarah Isger, staff writer at The Dispatch. On the left, Moa Lathy, executive director at Georgetown University's Institute of Politics and Public Service. Sarah, I did not let you get a last word in uh, after hearing <laughs> Biden and then Mo talk about inflation and the accusation that Republicans are going to basically make inflation worse. What, what's, what's your response? 
I just find it kind of fascinating because you could take that Joe Biden clip from 2008 and it would make a lot more sense. Those were the Republican policies of, you know, the Bush and post-Bush years, but those aren't MAGA policies. I mean, I don't fully know what MAGA policies are. Kevin McCarthy's kind of like a, hey, look, there go my people. I must follow them. So on any given day, it can change. But the whole point is that the MAGA part that's taking over the Republican Party is deeply, deeply populous. That's why you saw the changes on trade in the Trump administration and why you see the progressives having to withdraw their letter about Ukraine, because it sounded too much like what Kevin McCarthy had just said on Ukraine. So I just think Joe Biden's probably wrong on what the MAGA policies are, either intentionally or maybe he really doesn't know that the Republican Party, I don't, that part of it at least, doesn't really seem to have a lot of policies on this. But they're certainly not what the old Republican policies were, this Republican Party uh, is going to look a lot more populist and a lot more focused on working class, non-college educated voters. All right. I want to bring in our special guest and uh, a good friend of the show, Kimberly Atkins Store. She's a senior opinion writer and columnist for the Boston Globe, uh, inaugural columnist of The Emancipator and also co-host of the political podcast, Hashtag Sisters in Law. Kim, welcome back. Thanks for having me. It's good to be with you. Always good to have you. Um, so the Supreme Court, as we've talked about on on this show, back in session, next up on the court's docket, affirmative action in higher education. Um, on Halloween, the court's going to hear arguments in two cases from Harvard and the University of North Carolina, maybe two on the nose for spooky season, but many legal experts are already calling affirmative action a dead man walking. Um, and given the conservative supermajority, a lot of experts think the court is going to gut the precedent that allows colleges to consider a student's race in the admissions process. Um, affirmative action, of course, was upheld, but by one vote in 2016, and we have a more conservative court now. So, uh, Kim, can, can you just frame this? I mean, what, what's at stake here in these, in these two cases? Well, a lot is at stake. It's the ability of schools, both private schools that receive federal funding, which is most of them, uh, including Harvard, which is the the richest uh, university in the world, uh, as well as public schools. It What's at stake is the ability of those on admissions boards to decide for themselves what the best makeup of the student body should be, considering a number of factors including race, um, especially in a country, as we have uh, been talking about, particularly over the last couple of years, that has a legacy of systemic racism that has kept people out of higher education, that has made it harder for people of color to be equally considered in higher education. And so what is likely to happen is the court is going to, in my opinion, misread the Constitution uh, in a way that it has for 40 years, and that ensures that affirmative action policies will be struck down. Can I, I mean, you mentioned the Constitution. I, I want to bring up Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of conservatives make the case that any school receiving funds from the federal government cannot discriminate. And is there a sound argument that they're making that these admissions policies violate the Civil Rights Act? Um, in a word, No. But the problem is the Supreme Court precedent that has existed up until now that has, uh, in a limited way, upheld affirmative action policies over the last 40 years weren't really based on the right part of the Constitution. What those cases hold is exactly what you said, that the Constitution prohibits discrimination 
by race, period. And by giving a preference or considering the race of an applicant, what you're essentially doing is discriminating against other applicants that are not applicants of color, namely white applicants. They also, uh, one of the challengers makes this convoluted argument that somehow Harvard's policy discriminates against Asian Americans when the data shows that it actually does not. But what the real precedent in the court that should be considered is the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment was passed after the Civil War uh, as a part of Reconstruction to ensure that Black people would not be denied rights, would not be denied access, and could become fully participating citizens in the United States. And it was expressly passed to give a constitutional foundation to the kind of um, reparative laws that were needed in order to effectuate that. And I believe that affirmative action falls plainly in the meaning of the 14th Amendment and would be allowed. But the problem is that is not what uh, the justices in the Bakke case, in the Grutter case, in the Fisher case based it on. They based it on this idea that there is a compelling state interest in diversity of student bodies because that's a compelling interest that helps everybody, including white students where there could have been a sound argument, in my opinion, made that really ensuring that you graduate a diverse a diverse student body that goes out into the world and can serve all communities is in itself a compelling state interest. Oh, that's so interesting. So you're saying if if they had argued in like the famous Bakke case and earlier cases, if they had based their arguments on the 14th Amendment, it would be a lot easier to uphold affirmative action in these cases today. Yes, it absolutely would. And they considered that four of the justices in Baki were backing uh, the position that, you know, addressing, redressing past racism is a compelling state interest. That should be enough to overcome a constitutional challenge. But it was just one justice who didn't go along with that and instead backed this diversity idea that really doesn't have a sound constitutional basis and is very open to attack, which is what we have seen ever since. The Supreme Court has whittled, uh, made it harder and harder to meet this test uh, of you know, advancing diversity while not really considering race in a discriminatory way, that's impossible. And that's exactly what the court is going to find now. You know, you wrote a column about this in, in the Boston Globe, and, and, and I really encourage everyone to, to read it because I learned a lot about where this could go going forward. You, you lay out some things that universities can do if affirmative action is struck down and standardized tests that benefit mostly white affluent students who can afford prep courses end legacy admissions that benefit wealthy white students, get companies that benefit from diversity, especially in science, technology, education, to pressure schools to, to keep student bodies diverse. And and the one I, the thing I wanted to ask you, I mean, you, you wrote quite powerfully that systematic denial to black Americans of access to quality education is a problem still awaiting a true solution. So are you saying that affirmative action as a solution was was flawed, problematic, and that these things might actually get to where you think universities need to be? No, I think that affirmative action is one tool in the toolbox to ensure equal access to education. Um, I'm saying that what the court could do 
is exactly what I said and say, you know what, we're looking at the 14th Amendment. We think that there is a sound constitutional basis for this. And we are establishing that that is the state compelling interest that has to be proven here and discard this idea that diversity in itself is is the only compelling uh, state interest that can pass constitutional muster. But in the meantime, uh, there are other things that can be done. The, the one thing that this will leave behind, I think the most glaring thing, is legacy admissions, which just serves to reinforce the kind of preferential treatment that wealthier white students and families have always received at these uh, educational institutions, and there is no counterbalance to ensure that other people get the same uh, the same kind of access. So that's something that's in the hands of schools like Harvard. Harvard is rich enough that they can end legacy admissions. They can also decline federal funding that allows them to choose and admit who they wish in whatever way they wish, including using, using affirmative action. So I think the next step after this ruling is to see what schools themselves do to commit to um, being a part of the solution to systemic racism, uh, continue to do that despite what the Supreme Court does. If Harvard has a few wealthy families saying like, oh, if you're not going to automatically take my, my son, daughter into school, I'm not going to give you money. Harvard will be just fine. Yes, they will. Sarah, how, how do you think about define this this moment? So there's so much I disagree with about the framing of this case that Kimberly offered, but let me give you one thing that I think we're in very much agreement on, but Harvard isn't. So one of the race-neutral alternatives where the school would not use race and instead um, would eliminate legacy admissions as well as professors' kids, which, as Kimberly said, is overwhelmingly white, uh, and increase the tips for low-income applicants. That would have reduced the number of white students from 40% to 33%. It would have increased the number of Hispanic applicants from 14 to 19%, and Asian American applicants from 24 to 31%. It would have kept GPAs the same with a uh, reduction in SAT scores from 2244 to 2180. So about 60-point reduction in SAT scores. Harvard said, no, they want to keep the legacy admissions, which you want to talk about something that breeds systemic racism. Remember, Harvard used to only use the SAT. And if you got a high enough score, you got into Harvard. And what happened was too many Jews were getting into Harvard, and so they had to do something about that. That's when they started the holistic applications that they're now saying are so necessary. It was to keep Jews out of Harvard. They were very good at it. They've now admitted and apologized for the fact that they created holistic applications to keep Jews out. And part of that was this personal score. And so when Kimberly said that there's no evidence that they're discriminating against Asian students— True, if you include that personal score. Interestingly, African-American students always are scoring the highest on that score, and Asian-American students are always scoring the worst. If you take out the personal score, then the statistics show that absolutely Harvard is discriminating against Asian students when they apply, um, and they're not willing to get rid of the legacy admissions. They're not willing to focus on low-income students. Fascinating, by the way, when you look at, uh, for instance, Washington University in St. Louis has roughly 20% of their students come from families that make $650,000 or more a year, and 6% of their students come from families that make less than $65,000 a year, which is roughly the median income for a family of four in this country. They're using 
race-based admissions at that school. Do you think that that's a diverse student body at that point? No way. And very similar things happening at Harvard, at all of these other schools. They don't want to give up the legacy admissions. They don't want to give up having rich kids. And in order to then not have a racial mix that they don't like, they use these mechanical race-based admissions. And some of the quotes in the record are absolutely horrific. Um, One of them saying, these are uh, stellar academics for an African-American kid. I'm going through all this trouble because this is a biracial male. Perfect 2400 SAT, all five on APs, one B and 11th. Brown? Heck no. Asian, of course. That, that's from admissions officers at Harvard. That should horrify us. Mo, are you horrified? Uh, look, I, I'm not, I, I can't engage in the legal argument. I'm, I'm the non-lawyer on this <laughs> In the group, panel. yeah, me too. I'm with you. But, you know, one thing that I think we all agree on, everyone on this panel, is that our universities and, and, and the academy writ large is better served with as much diversity as possible. All the diversities. We obviously need to bring in more young people of color. But for in a lot of elite universities, we also need to bring in more people of from rural communities, from underprivileged, uh, all the underprivileged communities, people who do not have the same access uh, that the traditional student has. And so, uh, you know, as the court begins the deliberations on affirmative action, I think we all need to be thinking about what are the steps, what are the measures we can take to ensure, to ensure that we are bringing as many voices into our universities giving as many people access to it and lifting up as many people who have been blocked access to it as possible. I worry that with the current landscape as it is, that an elimination of of affirmative action will be a step back in bringing in some uh, communities that are typically that have historically been blocked from having this access. But I also agree that affirmative action is just one tool in the toolbox. And so while I certainly hope the court upholds it, um, because we don't need fewer tools, um, I'm hopeful that university administrators around the country are taking advantage of all the other tools to make sure that that we can get those uh, give give that access. That's one reason I think everyone should read uh, your column, Kim, because you're taking the conversation in into that direction. If if indeed these decisions go the way we we think they they might go, um, I, Kim, I want to I want to thank you, Kimberly Atkins Store, a columnist for the Boston Globe. Uh, and the Emancipator and co-host of the podcast, Hashtag Sisters in Law. We could talk about this for hours, I think, and hopefully we'll have more time in the future. Kim, uh, it's always great to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. We have reached that time once again for our famed Left, Right, and Center rants, where we feature pet peeves from across the political spectrum. We are tweaking things a little bit on the show. Sometimes what's on your mind, maybe what's on our minds, isn't that negative. It's not a beef. It's not a grievance. Maybe it's something that's inspiring you, making you smile. So we're going to officially start including the option of a rave or rant. Uh, Basically, it's what's important to you that we didn't get to on today's show. So Mo Alethi, what didn't we get to that you would like to rant or rave or talk about? 
Well, uh, first, a, a, a super quick rave, and that is the inclusion of the rave on this show. I don't think we spend enough time talking about what we like. There you in, go. That's why we're doing uh, when it. we're talking about politics. And so, thank you for that. Uh, so, in that spirit, I'm going to say I was in a conversation not long ago with Sarah, and in that conversation, I learned something about her. I learned oh, no. that Sarah knows how to do. <laughs> Screech owl calls, and she explained what? the backstory, and it was so deliciously weird and bizarre uh-huh. that she could do this. And it was such a moment of levity in the middle of a very passionate conversation about politics, and a nice reminder to me that we all are weird, we all are bizarre, <laughs> we all have our idios, uh, you know, syncrasy, and. <laughs> And we're all human. Yeah. And if we remember that just a little bit more, maybe politics wouldn't suck as, ba- <gasps> as bad as it does. You turned Sarah's screech owl call into a larger <laughs> lesson about life and humanity. I love that. Uh, it, yeah. I just, I needed an entry to make sure it got on the show. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's Sarah, that's your entry. Is I hope that you're going to use your time to screech and tell us why you are so good at this, whatever it is. My mother was a state and federally licensed wildlife rehabilitator, something I highly encourage, by the way. And so I, growing up, uh, had frozen rats in my freezer, which my parents lovingly called ratsicles. So I wasn't afraid of them. We would thaw them in the microwave and I cut up rats all the time and uh, fed them to owls because my mother specialized in raptors and deer. We lived in a rural part of uh, Texas outside of Houston. Um, so yeah, we got a lot of screech owls. And so, yes, I learned <laughs> to do a screech owl impression, which I assume I am now going to have to do on this podcast. You assume or, correctly. It's, it's yeah. Yeah. fired. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Here we go. Oh my God. That sounds like an, an animal. <laughs> so that's a screech owl. You yeah, just heard them so small. much that you were able to to do it. <laughs> yeah, I just, I've raised so many of them. They're like little gray meatballs as babies. Um, but even as adults, they're only, I don't know, maybe six or eight inches tall. They're gray, but the recessive ones have red feathers. So we call them redheads. Uh, so for a long time, we had a redheaded mother with a gray father uh, in our yard. And let that be the metaphor that screech owls can come together and have their little <laughs> bicolored babies. And they're so adorable and they make very cute sounds. Well, this has been amazing. Ratsicles are something that I can't unhear now that you've said that. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I uh, hope everyone enjoyed that. I certainly did. That is all the time we have for today. Thanks to Sarah Isger, Moa Lathy, and also Kimberly Atkins Store. Left, Right, and Center is produced by Laura Dine Million. Our production assistant is Alexander Applegate. The show is recorded and mixed by Matt Schwartz. Todd M. Simon composed our theme music. Left, Right, and Center is a co-production of KCRW and Fearless Media. Sarah, just one more time. One more, one more screech owl. Oh, that, that might have been the best one. All right. I'm David Green. Thanks for joining us. Tune in next week uh, for more Strange Sounds and for more Left, Right, and Center. <laughs> Download and subscribe at kcrw.com slash LRC, the KCRW app, or wherever you find podcasts. Left, Right, and Center is produced and distributed by KCRW. 